We respectfully acknowledge the University of Arizona is on the land and territories of indigenous peoples. Today, Arizona is home to 22 federally recognized tribes, with Tucson being home to the Autumn and Yaqui. Committed to diversity and inclusion, the university strives to build sustainable relationships with sovereign native nations and indigenous communities through education offerings, partnerships, and community service. medicine is a small but global movement, so anybody who wants to be involved is welcome with open arms. Well, hello, and thank you for joining us for our fourth season of the BA Path Podcast. Steph and I are looking forward to continuing to highlight some of the great things our colleagues are doing around the country, including some of the clinical roles, the educational programs, and trends that are occurring in the PA profession. We're excited to kick off our latest season with a highlight on an important clinical role for PAs in the world street medicine. Today we talked with Brett Feldman, director of the Keck Street Medicine Program at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles. Brett and I talked about this PA-led venture that has expanded exponentially to include many other health professions. We talk about the impact that this program has had on the care of people experiencing chronic homelessness. And we talk about Brett's impact on research and educational processes as well in building pathways, healthcare providers on the streets. Finally, we talk about the great reminder that this is of the power we have with the privilege of being healthcare providers and advocates. We hope you enjoy the kickoff to season four. Well, I'm so excited to welcome you, Brett, today. Your work that you're doing in LA is just incredible. And the work that you do around the world in your other roles is equally impressive. Uh, Before we really dive into street medicine and the things that you've been dedicating your life to uh, as a PA, let's start with like your story of how you became a PA and uh, what led you into street medicine down the road. So what is your path to, to becoming a PA? It all started with two words. Kevin Low Henry. <laughs> <laughs> don't don't be throwing me under the bus. Somebody else is to blame for this. Come on. So you just blame everything. So you know, basically, my then girlfriend, now wife, Corinne, was at Midwestern, one of your students. And we so we went to Penn State together, just you know, rewinding a little bit. The profession is not was not then what it is now. I had, I was an undergrad. I never even heard of a PA. And now there's pre-PA clubs, which I never existed back then. Yeah. And so I remember asking her what she was doing after we graduated from Penn State. And she said she was going to go to PA school. I never heard of that and didn't know what I wanted to do with my life, except go where she was going. And so she was going to Midwestern for PA school. And so I went to Chicago too. And saw her going through school and was still trying to figure out what I wanted to, to, to do with my life. And, and kind of two things were happening simultaneously. One thing was we were holding study sessions at our apartment with her classmates. And I remember listening to 
them talking about the classes. And I thought it was really interesting. And obviously I wasn't in the class, but I took an endocrinology test and I got a B um, <laughs> on one of the practice tests. Sure. And I was like, you know, it gave me some confidence. Maybe I could do it. And then at the same time, you were going to, you were taking the students to Hesed House. And man, it was so hard to get into volunteer because everybody wanted to volunteer, but you let me go. And then I remember sitting, talking to one of the residents there and he was, and I had no medical training. I was a complete disaster. I remember just having to, I was writing, I thought you were almost like a stenographer. I was writing down every single thing that they were saying in the margins, upside down, there was arrows in the medical chart, <laughs> but I loved it. And I remember the person saying, you know, I, I didn't always used to be like this. I used to eat steak every night for dinner. I used to be somebody. And I remember thinking first, nobody, no matter how rich you are, eat steak every night for dinner. And second, that he said he used to be somebody. Struck me how dehumanizing homelessness was. Eating places that humans shouldn't eat, sleeping places where shouldn't humans shouldn't sleep. And that stuck with me. And for our listeners, Hesed House was or is still a, a shelter for those experiencing chronic homelessness in Aurora, Illinois. And uh, we had a once, once a week clinic that we uh, served along with a nurse practitioner and, and a physician. I don't know if you know this, but, or if you remember this, but the clinic itself, when I started volunteering there, their medical director was one of the physicians that was affiliated with our internal medicine practice in Wheaton. He, he was in the Naperville office, but it's, it just goes to show you how small a world we are when we start to connect with people on similar passions. And suddenly you get this great opportunity to introduce students to this uh, clinic community that was out there and and you and of course your wife had started to attend. Yeah, yeah. So I had those experiences and decided, well, I want to be a PA. And so where do you go when you want to be a PA? Kevin O'Henry's office. And I was clueless about the world. And so I didn't know to make an appointment or anything and walked in and asked your secretary if I could talk to you. You said yes. And you said, how long have you wanted to be a PA? I didn't know that you wanted to be a PA. I said, since yesterday. And you were like, all right, great. Well, here's all the things you need to do. And, and I got my list and and went to it. I was like 14 then, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> that was a long time ago. My gosh. Okay. Yeah. So so you so you started uh, looking at that list and and what was your kind of uh, process to get to the point of where you became an applicant for PA schools? Yeah. Um, so it, it wasn't easy. There was no online classes at the time. And I was, I had an undergraduate degree, but had all, all the prerequisites. So I was a non-degree student, which meant that I got to sign up for classes after everybody else that was a degree student got to sign up for classes. So there were times I was taking classes at three different colleges at a time just to try and get the, the prerequisites. Mm -hmm. I also didn't have any clinical hours. And again, not to date myself, but there was... I think there was monster.com. That was the only thing. And so I printed out my CV and walked the streets to anything that looked remotely medical and asked for a job um, and got a job being a physical therapy assistant because in Illinois, I don't know if this is still the case, you either needed an associate's degree or a related degree. That was a bachelor's degree. And I had a degree in kinesiology. Nice. Nice. So, so you're getting your clinical experience, you're getting all your courses knocked down. In the meantime, Corinne is 
completing her PA training at Midwestern, uh, presumably on clinical rotations at this point when you're working clinically. Yeah. Yeah. And then she graduates and gets gets her certification. Uh, what led you to move back to Pennsylvania and to pursue PA education there? Um, well, I'm I'm from Pennsylvania, and and I went to visit the sales, which is where I ended up going. And even before PA school, I was a competitive bodybuilder, as you know. And so I was. You were, still, I believe, a Mister Teen USA, right? Yes. So I was still a meathead, and <laughs> and at Penn State. I trained at East Hall's gym, um, which was in the basement of a dorm. It was a dingy gym and we only, it was like a student run gym and we only cleaned it twice a year when we opened and, and when we closed. Oh my gosh. And, and so I went to the sales and they were the number one program in the country from board scores and had, you know, an amazing pass rate. And the program was in the basement of a dorm. Hmm. And I was like, this is, this is perfect for me because I trained in a basement of a dorm and we had a, you know, there was multiple national champions in that gym at Penn State. And now here it is, top program in the country in the basement of a dorm. And so that's how I ended up at the sales. Okay. And and at that time, Corinne ended up in what specialty? She her first job was in surgery? In uh in uh trauma. Trauma surgery. Okay. Yeah. The PA profession. I think it's still like this. You you can correct me, but as, on the East Coast, it, it was huge. Um, at, at the time, I think a third of the PA schools in the country were in like New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. Yeah. Um, and Le- Lehigh Valley, where when I left, there was over 600 PAs just in that um, hospital system. My gosh, so, wow. So it was it, it's a big place for PAs to go. And so she got a job working in trauma and I and I went to school. Okay. And in school is when you first got this idea to start a shelter clinic for those experiencing homelessness in Allentown, Pennsylvania, in that area, correct? Yeah, basically we were when when Corinne was on rotations, I noticed that because I was an outsider, I wasn't enrolled in classes. They her classmates were coming back different. It was like uh they came back, it was like cool to be jaded, where mm-hmm. um, you know, healthcare would be so great if it wasn't for the patients. Patients don't do this, patients don't do that. But when they went to Hesed House, it was like somebody hit the reset button and they remembered why they wanted to go into medicine in the first place. And when I started doing this work, it, it admittedly at the time it was selfish in that I saw what happened to her classmates and I didn't want that to happen to me. And so I looked for somewhere in Allentown to volunteer and there was no place to volunteer. So we decided to start our own shelter-based clinic and modeled it after what we had seen with you at Hesed House. And and this was while you were just enrolling in the school or just before that? It was, so during my my P1 year, my first year is when we started the process. And the first day of clinic was January, I believe it was January 20th of my second year. Okay. And the sales, the sales supported this, right? They were, they were on board with uh, kind of helping you as best as they could. Yeah. Um, They actually made it part of the curriculum right off the bat where it was a required rotation. And we went back and forth with this. And the decision was if we only allow the people to go who want to volunteer, then we're only like, you know, there's a selection bias. We're only feeding the people that chose this, but that this is a valuable enough experience. It's core to our beliefs and that the people that don't want to volunteer probably need it even more. 
And so from the very beginning, it was part of the curriculum and a required part of going to school there. Who was the director at the time that supported that? Chris Bruce. Chris Bruce. Oh, good for Chris. That's awesome. Yes. <laughs> Fantastic. And so so you are uh, finish your P2, you graduate, and uh, you're looking for clinical work. Tell us about what you landed in and how your street medicine career really kind of uh, developed at that point. Yeah. So my first job was as a hospitalist, and it, it was the it was the perfect job for what ended up being a street medicine career because I, I worked for a private practice. It was a big private practice, and it was very supportive of of PAs. I think we had something like fifteen physicians and like seventeen PAs, and we also covered the whole continuum. So I got around in the hospital, the the office, I was in um, long-term acute care, short-term rehab, skilled nursing facilities, all kinds of different things across the whole continuum. I got to learn from other PAs who had been practicing much longer than I had. Um, And the hospital, uh, a hospitalist is a great place to learn anyway, because you get to interact with all the specialists. Yeah. So it was a very fertile ground. And then at the same time, the um, the partners within the practice were very open to teaching us how to run a practice, the business part of running a practice. And so I just learned so much being there. That was my full-time job. We still had the clinic at the Allentown Rescue Mission, realized that we were only serving a small sliver of the population started another shelter-based clinic across town. That one was a part of Leah Valley Health Network. And then street medicine start, you know, kind of came from those clinics. That's amazing. And the issue of a hospitalist training, I would imagine the criticality of the patients you take care of as a hospital's PA, um, you know, usually in society, that's because those patients have been through extreme challenges. And so similarly, the patients you see out on the streets that are chronically homelessness, we know from data from um, Boston's Healthcare for the Homeless and their amazing team that the average person experiencing chronic homelessness for six months or more, their lifespan is cut short immensely. I think, what is it, 51 is the average age of death for patients uh, with that experience? Yeah, it's um, depending on a study, 42 to 52 years old. Okay, okay. So like you said, that training ground as a hospitalist really gets you ready to see the things that we normally don't see in the average population in our clinics. Is that accurate? Yeah, definitely. And and the other place that, that I learned so much that maybe even helped me more than the hospitalist was working in the nursing homes. Sure. Because in the nursing homes, you know, obviously those patients are really sick. They're at the end of their life and they are, the facilities are incentivized financially not to send people back to the hospital. And so we were, we were asked to practice a very high level of medicine in the facility and things took a while. So in the hospital, if you order labs, you get them back within a few hours. If you order them stat or the next day at the latest in the nursing home, it's like three days. So I need, if I think somebody is in acute heart failure and, I, and I'm choosing not to send them to the hospital, I can't wait to get the labs back before I begin treatment, just like on the street. You know, we have to sure. make decisions without labs. And so I think even more than the hospital, that was, that prepared me to, to work on the street. And, and when you started doing street medicine in Allentown, Pennsylvania, you began to connect with some of the 
founding fathers of street medicine and and mothers, um, some of the leaders of the profession from physician communities and other health professional communities. Can you tell our audience a little bit about the evolution of street medicine? I know there's it goes back to Mother Teresa in India in some ways, but it, you know maybe you could talk a little bit about that and then the U.S. kind of adoption of that uh, approach to caring for those experiencing chronic homelessness. Yeah, there was um, some parallel things happening. First was uh, Jack Prager, who was a or is a Welsh physician who worked in Calcutta and did uh, the um, leprosy initiatives with with Mother Teresa. And uh, he has some great Mother Teresa stories. He's getting up there in, in age now. He's in his 90s. But he would say, it's great to have a living saint, but not to work for one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> evidently, she was very demanding, as, as you could imagine. Um, <laughs> That's amazing. That's funny. So he was doing his work in Calcutta. Jim Withers started in Pittsburgh in the early 90s. Jim O'Connell started the Tale of the Two Gyms in the late 80s in Boston, not knowing each other were doing this work. Mm -hmm. um, and then they eventually meet and realize that that others around, you know, and G Jim Withers especially went searching for others around the world who might be doing similar work. And almost 20 years ago, convened the first International Street Medicine Symposium to bring people together. And they agreed on two things. The first was they wanted to continue to meet. And the second was they wanted to continue to involve learners, that that was going to be a core part of what they were doing as part of the Institute. For me, I didn't know any of that when I started doing street medicine. How, how I got pushed out onto the streets was one of our patients that we were seeing in one of the shelters. It was a rescue mission. And he was in his 40s, but had an intellectual disability. He was probably six or seven um, intellectually. And we were treating him for a number of other things as well, but they found a pornographic magazine in his locker and kicked him out in January in, in Pennsylvania. So it was frigid and we were really scared that he wasn't going to survive the winter. So we went looking for him and I found him not, not far from the shelter under a bridge with a community that took really good care of him, maybe better than the shelter took of him. Mm -hmm. um, he was he was with a campfire, he had food, he was warm. And I realized that even though this was not far from the shelter, there was this whole other community of people that we weren't getting to. And those times under the bridge with them, listening to their stories, learning from them was some of the most valuable experiences that I've had. And so that's why they say it's not going out there. That's the hard part. It's coming back. Um, and in yeah. some ways, I just... I've stayed there in my mind ever since then. I, I can't even begin to imagine the mind shift that you had from that experience and all the other experiences that we've talked about over the years. You know, you, you there are just some pivotal moments in your career as a PA serving these incredible people on the streets that have just suffered so much that I know stick with you. They stick with the people that know you. Do you mind just talking about some of those pivotal stories that have really impacted the way you think about the work that you do? Yeah. Um, you know, one back in those early days is like uh, Craig was one of our patients and um, and we had a hospital-based consult service. Um, so we would meet people in the hospital and then follow them out onto the streets. And he was exactly 50 years old when he came into the hospital, 
with belly pain. And for those of you listening that uh, are in PA school, 50 is when you get your colonoscopy. So he came in with belly pain and had metastatic colon cancer everywhere, even though he wasn't yet due for his colonoscopy. And, you know, we talked to him about his advanced directives. He decided he didn't want um, any surgery or anything done. He just wanted to be made comfortable. And nobody could bear to see him go back out onto the street in the condition that he was in. He was living in this drainage pipe for the past three years. And so I cut a deal for him. I talked to our inpatient hospice and and uh, to go to inpatient hospice, you need to have a life expectancy of one to two weeks and they need something active to do like active respiratory support or pain management. And he would need those eventually, but he didn't have any of those things, but they still let him come in. Um, and he could, they even broke the rules. He could come and go visit his friends, all that. And so I walked in and I triumphantly showed, you know, told him about this great deal that I cut. You can do this, you could do that. And he said, I'm not going. I'm like, what do you mean you're not going? It's a great deal. You get all your food. He said, no, you said that they're going to die within one to two weeks. That means they need to bed more than I do. I'm going back to my drainage pipe. And so in the midst of his suffering, he was able to recognize somebody else's suffering as worse than his own. And so that level of love is something that we've tried to live up to ever since. And so we took care of him uh, in his drainage pipe for a few months after that until he was ready to go into hospice. And, and he eventually passed away there. But, you know, I think overall what happens on the street when you go back out, when you go out onto the street is there's an identity crisis that you that happens because you went into medicine to help people. And then you go out and you see all these people that are not being helped. And the suffering is immense that you encounter. And so you ask, like, who am I? Am I actually doing what I set out to do? And then you find yourself looking into the system that you are once a part of from the outside and all of the horrors that are occurring. And there was, you know, you asked some of these like pivotal moments for me. There was, there was a patient who we were seeing at the shelter, which was probably about three and a half, four miles, maybe longer um, away from the hospital. He knew actually probably closer to between five and 10 miles, which is, it's a long way, irrelevant yeah. exactly how much. And yeah. he knew I worked at the hospital. And so he walked in, during the winter with belly pain to see me from the shelter all the way to the hospital. And he was going to be admitted. But my the practice that I worked for only took private insurance. And so we admitted him to a different service. And so here I was with this person that was good enough for me to take care of at the clinic, went through all of this effort just to see me because he trusted me. And mm -hmm. now he's not good enough. And that was something I wasn't willing to live with. And so it wasn't long before then that we worked to to do this full time. But those are some things. And so, you know, my colleagues, you have to prevent yourself from wanting to pick a side and try and work to make that there is no side, but but you do have to actively fight against that. Yeah, the concepts of person-centered care are easily lost in the shuffle of healthcare uh, business practices. And, you know, we, these concepts of, well, we are, we can't just do this for free. There are other organizations that do that for free elsewhere. And clearly if those organizations were well-oiled machines that had the resources to take care of everybody who needed low cost or free healthcare, we wouldn't have these issues. We still do have these issues in the way our, our country does this right now. So 
Uh, getting back a little bit to the the evolution of street medicine. So at what point in time did you start to get involved in the International Street Medicine Symposium? Because I know that in that role, you've done a lot of international consulting. You've also done a lot of consulting in the United States. And, you know, I think when we first started talking to you about street medicine in Los Angeles for USC, at that time, uh, we had a couple players in town. Kerry Kowalski was doing street medicine on the west side of LA. Uh, there may have been a couple other players around the state, but I mean, the number of teams that have grown around the United States since I first learned about this with you is just incredible. So can you talk a little bit about that entry to the International Street Medicine Symposium and what you've observed over your probably more than a decade of working with that organization to see street medicine grow both nationally and internationally? Yeah. You're you're right. I I never finished answering your question. I got wrapped up. That's okay. I and I did too. So we're good. <laughs> so um, all right. So I started doing. I followed that patient out onto the street, and I started. I started doing health work on the street. I wouldn't necessarily call it street medicine. And then I thought that there must be somebody else doing this similar work. And so I went online and found Jim Withers and the Street Medicine Institute, and emailed Jim to see if he'd be willing to talk to me. And I didn't know it, but street medicine is a small but global movement. So anybody who wants to be involved is welcome with open arms. And I remember I was in the sixth ward, 6C, and during my phone call with Jim, and I was supposed to be rounding all patients, but I was hiding in the stairwell. And I and my you know hospital phone was going off and I was silencing it because I was so enthralled with our conversation. And we talked for two hours. And after that, there was nothing else I wanted to do. It was uh, maybe a year after that until I started being able to work full time and a few years uh, in street medicine, a few years after that. Well, and, and of course, I was going to the international street medicine conferences. We had presented there and then they asked me to join the board. And so for the past few years, I guess, yeah, maybe eight years or something, um, I've been on the board. And so now... Um, one of the things that the Institute does among any are provide technical assistance to other programs, to our member programs. We have about 160, uh, 170 members around the world. And so Jim and I do the technical assistance to, to our members. And But street medicine has changed a lot um, since I started. Just conceptually, how we think about it has changed. And this is fairly new. It's just in the last few years. But when I started, we really thought of it as transitional primary care with the goal of providing a certain level of care on the street and then eventually transitioning them to a brick and mortar clinic. Even when I got to LA, that's how we thought of it. And basically what we realized is that that aspiration to transition them is a little bit too aspirational as long as they're still on the street. And there had been other experiences like for example, there was a, a a nurse that I was taking care of in Pennsylvania who was on the street. She was one of these horrible stories where she was in a car accident. She wound up getting addicted to the pain pills they were giving her. She switched to heroin and wound up on the street. I took care of her for four years outside. And then they were kind of pressuring me to see some of the transition, some folks into the brick and mortar clinic. And so I asked her to come see me. I was like, if anybody can do it, she can do it. She's a nurse, you know, understands traditional medicine. And she went to see, and she was not using anymore at the time. Mm -hmm. We had a great visit. And then I went to our nurse, Laura, and was told her what a great visit we had. And she said, oh, she didn't tell you she started using again. And I said, no, she didn't tell me. And she said, 
she said, when she sees you in the clinic, you're her PA, you're not Brett anymore. And it struck me on how much I was being dehumanized as part of this system, um, just like we dehumanize them. And so it, it had been evolving into this idea that we should not be forcing folks into the clinic, but people should get treated in the location where they prefer to be treated. But if we're going to do that, we have to provide better care on the street. And so I think both from experience and some technological advances, now it's just seen as primary care. We've dropped the transition. And and now for the first time, as of a few months ago in California, it's official that you can provide full service primary care on the street legally. And being reimbursed by Medicaid for patients who are eligible. Yeah. Yeah, that's incredible because that that essentially provides funds for the teams to be growing and for the care to become better as well. Yeah, it's still so for for the whole country, um, you still can't get reimbursed for street medicine. And it's because when you bill, you bill for what you did and where you did it. So you need a, a place of service code. There's no place of service code for the street. And we petitioned CMS to add a place of service code for the street a, a little over a year ago. And they're still thinking about it. They haven't turned it down, but they, they're very careful thinkers, I'll say that. But California acted right away. And they said, yes, th- there was a few things that we worked on with them. One, you could bill on the street. And the second one that they did, which was really important, was they made street medicine direct access providers. So in managed care, you, you get insurance, you get assigned to a primary care physician, and they're the gatekeepers. But when we're on the street, so everything has to go through them. When we're on the street, the PCP is not on the street. We're seeing the patient. And so now that we're direct access providers, we can order the meds and labs and diagnostic studies and everything that they need without having to get them to their PCP. And for the patients you serve who experience chronic homelessness, that because of Medicaid having managed care plans, in California, at least, are there per member per month opportunities for the investment in your street medicine practice that we would see if we were in a primary care brick and mortar building? Um, How exactly the payment is going to look is still yet to be determined. The managed care organizations and street medicine providers are all trying to work it out. There are things inherent in the street medicine model that make it less efficient from a billing standpoint, more efficient from the patient standpoint. Yeah, that's good. And yeah, so we're trying to work some of those things out. So let's talk about your transition to USC, because I think that provided you and Corinne with an opportunity to expand what you did from a perspective of um, maybe funding right? You had access to more funds, a strong commitment from the university, from the community, but that also provided you with an academic home to expand your services related to research, teaching, and advocacy. So can you tell a little bit about that? You know, because I know how hard it was for you to leave your clinic in Allentown and all the patients that you cared for on the streets there, but you were drawn to USC for some reason. And I'd love to, you know, you started April 1st of 2018, as I recall. And so, you know, now that you've had almost a total of uh, five years under your belt, what has been your experiences and what are you most proud of? I'll answer, but then I also have to ask you a similar question about that too. So when, when we were trying to carefully make this decision and there was so much that went into it, but basically we were just overwhelmed by the magnitude of the crisis in LA you know, at the time there was 45, the point time count had 45,000 unsheltered homeless at any given night. One night there was 45,000 on the street. Um, I'm from Philadelphia. We had 1,100 
to 45,000 and Philadelphia is not a nothing city. Yeah. And it looked like 4,500. There was just, or 45,000, there was people everywhere. So the need was clear. There really wasn't, you know, there was street medicine in Venice with Carrie and, and Coley, as you mentioned. There was some other medical. Yeah, that, that's the Venice Family Clinic team, right? Yeah, yeah, Venice yeah. Family Clinic. There was some street health type of things that were just starting to get going, but that was, Venice Family Clinic was really the only real street medicine as we think of it that was happening at the time. And so, but we also knew that it couldn't, like we would need 70 teams or something like that to cover the entire city. And so we also needed to train and equip others to do that. And there needed to be research because there's a lot of non-believers in street medicine. It challenges the system. It challenges how we think about ourselves and medicine. And so if, and we've all had to fight to exist and fight to survive. And if there was good research, maybe we wouldn't have to fight as hard. Mm-hmm. And so the combination of, there's more to it, but the combination of the magnitude of the crisis in LA, the infrastructure that USC provided, and the leadership, most importantly, in from USC, which was you, Dr. Robinson, and uh, Laura Mosqueda, who was the dean at the time. Dr. Robinson was the um, interim chair for family medicine at the time. There was a firm commitment from the university that this was important. Nobody else, like the other street medicine programs would be funded on some sort of extra money, maybe a grant or a donation. But but USC said, we are investing in this through budgetary money, started in the PA program. At the PA program, we used, you well, you did it, is the one that invested in it, and then others followed. But it was it was on hard money, and that meant that really meant the world to us because we knew it was a real commitment. It wasn't going to go away in a year or two after we moved the whole family. Yeah, and and on my side of that story, I remember you. So first of all, Kerry Kowalski, just to give credit where credits due, Kerry Kowalski was the first because you and I had kind of lost track of each other. We weren't keeping in touch frequently. I ran into Corinne at a PAEA meeting at one point that kind of reconnected us after all the, the years at Midwestern in Chicago. But Carrie was a graduate. She was a class president for the class of 2011, as I recall, from USC. And so that's right when I started at USC. And her first gig uh, was Venice Family Practice. And she was doing street medicine with them pretty quickly into her career. And so I knew of that. Carrie and I had spoken about that on many occasions when she was out teaching for our students. But when we reconnected and you came out for the white coat ceremony, what was really pivotal for me was I took you around LA. And when I took you down to Skid Row, which is uh, a concentration of chronically homeless patients, people experiencing chronic homelessness, there's roughly, I want to say maybe 8,000 people in a four to eight block square radius. It's, it is like going on a movie set to see that many people camped out on the streets. And I I think I, you know, I looked at you, somebody has been doing this around the world as part of the street medicine symposium and your, your jaw dropped and your eyes were, were as big as they could be. And I realized what we had here and what you could, you could contribute to that. So for me, that was a really easy thing, but what was interesting is SC went through a change in their dean leadership at the time, literally when we were coming out to Allentown to the International Street Medicine Symposium. And Dean Mosqueda had just been appointed interim dean at USC. She had been the department chair for the Department of Family Medicine. Dr. Robinson had just been appointed interim department chair, as you mentioned. And, and so the three of us committed to come out and, and experience the conference and learn more. And I just know that when we walked away from that conference in Allentown, we were blown away. 
by the synergy that we saw in bringing you two out to start the program at USC, but also just the way the, the universe kind of lined things up because now Dean Mosqueda was in a position of power where she could influence the success of this program. And truly the people at USC, from my experience, were always excited about this. It, there was not a lot of negativity from anybody. I think everybody knew what a crisis it was and, and that as a urban institution, we had an obligation to try to be part of the solution. But to see it all come to fruition the way it did was really special. Yeah. I mean, one thing that I would like to know, which I think would be useful for the listeners, and just a background on why I asked this, is there's a student coalition that's part of the Street Medicine Institute, and there's about 40 or so universities where the students go to, medical schools, PA schools make up most of them. Yeah. And and some of them are are functioning programs. Some of them are just clubs. There are other Pac-12 universities who will not claim their street medicine clubs um, because of liability is 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 what they say. So what advice would you give to some of these other places? Because you made the magic happen at USC. There's, if it can happen there, there's no reason it can't happen at some of these other places. Well, I think the, the common thing for me as a program director is the, the biggest challenge program directors have in the United States are clinical training sites. And either you partner with people who have slots that your students can participate in, or you make your own. And so for me, this was an opportunity to make our own and also align with so many community stakeholders who could potentially consider taking more PA students for training if they saw that we had a serious commitment to the mission and values that they had. So selfishly, that was number one, that I I saw kind of down the road, if we did this right, we could build our partnerships and community by a shared commitment to this population. And also having worked at Hesed House with you, I knew that the pathology, you know, the horrible thing about people experiencing chronic homelessness is that the pathology they have clinically is typically so far progressed from your typical primary care visits. So it's horrible that they have this pathology, but as a learner, it's a great opportunity to see concepts like health disparities in play, social justice in play, um, social determinants of health in play. So, so, you know, number, so that's number two, you have this amazing learning environment for students. The data suggests that there has never been an injury to a street medicine provider in the United States or in the world. And generally the people who we're dealing with are so happy to have somebody who has respect and, and stands in solidarity with them. As, as you always say, you talk about you know, being there in solidarity with the patient, um, that it it would be highly unusual for their, them to be an issue. And I've never heard of an issue yet. So from a liability perspective, I was able to convince the administration that, that there is just as much liability taking care of anybody at a different clinic. I've had students at clinics that were involved in a shooting where somebody came in and shot up an office and the student was in the office thinking, you know, we're thinking, they're safe there. But in this day and age, that clearly is not the case. I had another case of a student when I was at another university where a, a woman accidentally drove through the front of the, the clinic. Right. So so liability is relative. And I think those three things all helped us to move forward. And I and again, being an urban university, they had a serious commitment to community that Dr. Mosqueda and Dr. Robinson really believed in. So they stuck their necks out as well. Yeah. And um you know, it, 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 especially the clinical site thing that paid off because soon after we got here, we got the the HRSA grant as a PA training site, PA training grant, 
And right now from that grant, we have street medicine rotation for every PA student who wants one. We have 60 slots a year and started taking <laughs> medical students. Yeah, that's awesome. That is just incredible that it's all worked out. Because remember, when we first met, we said our goal is five teams in five years. And you're just about to hit your five-year mark. And you told me uh, before we got on the call that you have 40 employees in street medicine at Keck USC now. Yeah, once we're hired, once we're all hired up. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's that's incredible. Can you talk a little bit about the, the pivotal research things that have come out so far? I know house beds was one of the first things that you two did. Um, what are some of the things that you've kind of done that have helped you both in advocacy and in delivering care to patients? I mean, house beds was was just something I, I didn't realize how much that was going to catch on. Um, house beds is a is an acronym for a clinical tool that we developed to take an accurate homeless health history because um, you know lack of empathy is is uh, really a lack of the imagination, and if you don't know what your patients are dealing with on the street, you can't make good decisions for them. And and so house beds ask you things like how long they've been homeless for, what's their access to food and clean water and bathrooms and who else is working with them that you can collaborate with. And so it, it's designed to give you a very vivid picture of what their life is like. And that does impact the treatment plan. So for example, we see folks with liver disease and we recommend lactulose to prevent hepatic encephalopathy. But if we do house beds and we learn they don't have access to a bathroom, they're probably not going to take it because it'll give them diarrhea. So we recommend rifaximin instead. So there are things that impact clinical decision making. Another important thing that we do is we do a lot of surveying, which isn't research. It's just part of what we're doing through house beds, actually. And, and we've been able to use it as an important advocacy tool. So we know that outside of Skid Row, a lot of our patients are eating two to three meals a week. And those two to three meals I get because they buy them. And so in order, if they're going to buy them, they have to do something to get that money. So they'll panhandle. And so if you're going to panhandle all day in order to get one of your two to three meals, are you going to spend that money on one of your meals or on a bus ticket to get you to your PCP office or the DMV or a job interview? No, you're really hungry. You're going to eat. Um, or 85% are forced into the dehumanizing act of open defecation. And that has Im impact for the human dignity, but for the public health and safety too. Yeah. Um, so we shared this data with the city and it does change how they deploy resources. And then last, I'm waiting, we've been using the data, it actually hasn't been released yet, but the California Street Medicine Landscape Analysis. And what that will show is that we're doing primary care plus on the street. That it, and that it's not just USC doing this or that, but you know, at the time of the survey, 25 programs participated in the survey across the state. The vast majority were doing care for acute disease, chronic disease. It sounds a lot like primary care. Um, yeah. Over 70% were doing care for behavioral health therapy. 40% or I think about a little over 40% were doing MAT on the street, which is 7% you know, in a regular PCP office. So we're doing primary care plus for a population we'll let the streets build the program. And so there's a lot more, but those are just uh, some examples. One of the earliest things that you did in, in collaboration with LEC USC Medical Center and their leadership was track rehospitalization rates. Can you talk a little bit about that study? That was with our hospital-based consult service. And so the, the premise was that there's a whole lot of people 
unhoused in, in LA, we had one team. And so who was going to be first? And so we decided to use a hospital admission as a proxy for medical necessity, um, knowing that the people that were hospitalized were sicker than the folks on the street, which we knew from our work at Pennsylvania. And so we launched the program out of the hospital, seeing them in the hospital and following them on the streets. And so we published a descriptive study on what that was like. We're still working on getting the data out of it, but but uh, in, in a study, but essentially it showed that of the people we don't see, the 30-day readmission rate is a little over 30%. Of the people we do see, it's actually less than 10% with a two and a half day less length of stay. Nice. So that has real world consequences for the healthcare economic side and patient quality and all kinds of things. Yeah. Wow. And 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 so when you started in California, roughly how many street medicine programs were up and running? We were the second that was doing street medicine the way that we think about it. There were there were others doing some healthcare on the street, not medicine on the street, but st- but relying on referrals to the brick and mortar. Yeah. Um so we were the second and there was six programs in the state. Now there's at least 10 in LA. And we also, we host the California Street Medicine Collaborative. We have 68 organizations, part of the That's collaborative. That's amazing. Oh my gosh. They're not all doing street medicine. They want to, I would say somewhere in the forties are probably doing it, mm-hmm. but still, uh, I mean, it's growing astronomically. Yeah. And the other interesting thing about the the plan to start this at USC was to build a pipeline of future street medicine providers. So how many of those street medicine teams or others around the country are you aware of that have graduates from our PA school? That's a good question. So I don't know. I, I would no, say- I know uh, Anthony Minacho is up in Sacramento. Yeah. We got so Ben Casca. Yeah. Yeah. He. So Ben, yeah. So two of, at least two grads are working for Healthcare in Action. Which is out of um, Long Beach. Yeah, Long Beach, LA. Now they just started a new program in the Inland Empire and hired uh, Eddie Minacho, a graduate. Okay. Eddie's brother, Tony, started the street medicine program in Sacramento. Okay. Um, and so there's a there's a few more if we spend time thinking about it. But, you know, part of it was like the pipeline within USC. And we started the family medicine, uh, street medicine residency track. So now we're graduating some physicians with some experience. Fantastic. Uh, and the occupational therapy doctoral fellowship, which is the only one in the country. And now there's the first occupational therapy street medicine provider. And then the other part is the workforce development training people that are existing. And so we're uh we have a grant to do trainings on street medicine across the state and also set up new programs. So this year we're scheduled to set up nine new programs across the state. That's amazing. That is amazing. You guys started a Trojan trainer program at USC. It's really intriguing because the trainer is not a faculty member. It's one of your patients who experiences chronic homelessness. So can you talk about that? And then we can wrap things up. Yeah. So the Trojan trainer program, which we co-developed, was really there was two two goals. The primary goal was to honor the person experience experiencing homelessness's expertise in their own care. And that as much as we say we want to do this and do that, they're ultimately the leaders of the team. And the other, the flip side was that we just had an overwhelming number of students that wanted to be involved in this work. And we can't take you know, there's three classes at USC, 60 students a class who take, can't take 180 students on the street with us. 
And so this was a way of doing both where the patient was the trainer training the students how to take care of them. And so it's an interdisciplinary team, medical students and PA students, three to a team that are assigned to one trainer for a full year. So it's longitudinal and immersive. Um, and they see them at least weekly and they act almost as a navigator through the system, but they're also, you know, they have to focus on the, on the person that also, and then we also help the trainers in their role as a trainer, and they do get compensated for this work. And so sometimes it might just be they'll come over to their encampment for a little while and watch some football on their phone because they don't have a TV, or they'll take them out to lunch at one of the burger joints down the street because they never get to eat out. So it's some little things like that in addition to the other things. Are you doing research around the students' attitudes uh, before and after and around the trainers' perspectives on this as well? Yeah, we've done both. The, the papers are, the, the data is being analyzed and then we plan okay. on publishing it. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. Wow. Well, I know we could talk about this for a long time. And, uh, you know, obviously we're out of time. But Brett, thank you so much for sharing your story and also for the incredible work you, Corinne, and your team are doing at USC and and also the support that you're giving to all the programs around the state and, and the, the, the world. What's clear to me is uh, what I've always talked to students about is the power of one person or in your case, two people who have shared values that want to make a difference. And you carved out a career at this. You're, you're making a living doing this. It's like the win-win of the world because you get a chance to make the world better, but you also get a chance to do that for a living. And that is super cool. And I know that we look forward to seeing the, the story continue and the outcomes of your research and training happen for the next several decades. So thanks so much for sharing your time with us. Thank you. And it highlights the power of leadership and mentorship. So thank you for everything that you've done too. Well, we want to thank our guest, Mr. Brett Feldman, the director of the street medicine program at the Keck School of Medicine at the University of Southern California. And we want to thank him for the great work that he's doing, leading in a PA model for bringing great care to those experiencing homelessness. Tune in next week as we speak with Dr. Jeannie McHugo, the department chair for the University of North Dakota PA program. Dr. McHugo talks to us about their very unique model of education and their focus on rural care. Until next time, we wish you success with whatever path you are walking in life, and thank you for joining us. The purpose of this podcast is to provide news and information on the PA profession and is for informational purposes only. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the speakers and guests and do not necessarily reflect the official position or policies of the University of Arizona.